Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Oscar Molina. And I'm Alex Lee. We were random mates. And now we're random best mates. Oscar, we just caught up for like an hour before this, but do you want to fabricate your catch-up again? Yeah, no, that sounds good. It's funny how we go ahead and catch up before we start recording. And I think our mm-hmm. initial mission was to use the podcast as a way to catch up, but we're kind of skipping over that and just catching up before and then recording later. So yeah, we can go back through it. I'm doing well. It got really hot in LA this week. It's like 90 degrees right now. It's been 90 degrees for the past few days and I'm just sweating in my room right now. My room has terrible circulation as far as air goes because I have a tiny little window. It's towards the side of the house. So there's not much like free space because then the neighbor's house borders it. So it's been pretty toasty. And I feel like my monitors and all my computers just heat up the work area more. So it's been tricky to just like stay cool. Finally busted out the fan last night because I couldn't bear it. But uh-huh. we're doing good. Yeah. Reminds me of those uh, Reminds me of those times when we were in Toyon in that small dorm room. And we just like pop open that, that balcony door. The balcony being four square feet of, of semi-exterior terrace. Yeah, no, that room was crazy. And it got so hot because the entire external wall was entirely glass. There was just yeah. no insulation in the winter or in the summer, just letting the sun just be in. And it was a tiny room, so we, we heated it up really fast. I realized that we've we've lived on the third floor a bunch of times. And I feel like that has to do something in terms of experiencing heat on campus all of those years. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the higher... Well, heat rises, right? So there's that. Yeah, exactly. And then also, just I feel like you have less floors above you to like block any like heat that's passing through as well. Have you tried doing podcasting outside? Have you considered making that... What's the word for it? Fresco? No, not fresco. What's it? Queso fresco? Yeah, yeah, I think it's queso fresco. Making a queso fresco. (laughs) No, it's it's plein air. Oh, like the gazebo-like things, or <laughs> no, I'm just saying uh, the the artistic technique of painting outside. I think is plein air. Oh, okay. I have not. I should know this. Nah. Maybe one day. One day when we build up those funds, when we build up those Blue Apron sponsorships, we'll yeah. we'll buy that outdoor studio. Yeah. Once we get the sponsorships, we'll hopefully do a lot more with our lives. <laughs> <laughs> but how are things looking out in Texas right now? I'm saying we're chilling. Because I'm a relative newcomer to Houston and the energy industry. But I know that there are a lot of people who are hurting out there because a lot of their livelihoods are based in the energy industry. And as we know, this was this was recorded April 24th after the price of oil was negative for a little bit. Some it, it almost feels like a theoretical economics principle. Oh, if the if the price of oil is negative, what does that mean? No, that means people are willing to pay people to take oil off their hands. It seems like a funny hypothetical that you would talk about in class, in like a high school class, but that like actually happened, which had never happened before. Yeah, economically, I think people are kind of under the weather. Yeah. Have you been able to see that in sort of any of the work meetings that you've hopped on? Like, have you felt stress? It's like a general sense of unease um i think something that's cool about the maybe uh, 
who am I to say, but it, it occurs to me as a Texas mentality where people kind of, you know, laugh a little bit at it. It's not, it kind of feels like a little bit of like resilience. People are trying to take it in stride. People are trying to do the best that they can in this moment. Maybe in that respect, it hasn't felt like the entire world is burning around me. Things are bad, but a lot of the people that I work with have experienced hardship like this back in 2016, 2015, maybe. So people have seen some shit. They have that determination and the courage to keep moving forward. I really appreciate that. As for me, though, I don't know. I hope to develop those skills. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think, I think that comes with time and in your career where you get to a point where you're able to gauge what types of effects certain economic situations, health situations will have on your industry or your role. I remember during one of my roles working in manufacturing, some of the people, you know, there'd be like changes where it's like, oh yeah, there's an announcement like that management's going to make this sweeping type of change, or there's this order from the CEO that we're going to have to do this. And people kind of brush certain things aside or there's other policies that like occur and then they'll be like, Oh yeah, that might like just change everything and we're going to hate it. And I think this is of course on a larger scale where, you know, it is something we haven't seen, but you kind of feel it out and can compare it to past situations. Like you mentioned, whatever happened um, with the folks back in 2015, 2016 or other periods. Yeah, it almost feels like college back when you thought that certain meetings and programs were huge things. One thing that comes to mind is the freshman dorm house meeting. But as a former RA, I think I'm obligated contractually to say that house meetings are always required. But you you can remember maybe fall quarter when everyone was there, everyone really, really wanted to be a part of dorm culture. This was kind of your your main stepping stone in the Stanford community. Everyone wanted to be there. And then by spring quarter, you had to beg people. Yeah. As an RA, I had to beg people to come to those house meetings. So it, it, I guess the adult analogy is that every everything that happens as a new hire feels like big things because it's the first time that it's happening. You know, my first all hands meeting with the company or my office, my first performance um, evaluation, mm-hmm. and maybe my first round of layoffs. Um, but then you look up to some of the more senior members and they're like, oh, layoffs are going to start happening as if this was another procedural thing. In a perfect world, hopefully it's not a procedural yeah. thing that <laughs> happens every year, but it's that maturity that grants you the I don't want to say numbness because that sounds wrong, but the the pliability, is that is that a word? Pliability, I think that's a word. But yeah, where yeah. you're able to sort of adapt and and reactive, proactive about it, like you know what the best way to respond is and how to like mediate your response to the situations that yeah. kind of throw your way. Uh-huh. You don't get you don't get jaded or faded as much by everything, you know? Yeah. That's that's maybe the word, but pliability sure. is a good word too. I'm just thinking about the the I, I got that term from the compliant surface back in biomechanics. You don't remember that? I don't remember anything, but we learn about it in robotics. So it was our first assignment in biomechanics with movement, the compliant surface. 
No? Nope, no. Nope. Spr- springing track? All right, cool. Go, go, go. I told you, I have terrible memory. I used to have what I thought was great memory, but when it comes to events in my life now, so many things have faded out of my mind. And it's an unfortunate thing because there's just gaps in my memory. Like if you ask me to recall anything right now, like I don't think I can recall most of my life. When was the last time that you sort of remembered something in your life that you had previously forgotten or like something that you had to try hard to remember? Oh, recently on the call with our friend Cherie, we were talking about what the heck were we talking about? But there was a memory that came up. I had completely forgot it. She remembered it very vividly. Uh And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that did happen. I'm trying to remember what that was. But I'll get back to you when that comes to mind. No, I did end up remembering it in the moment. But it just didn't have a place in my head. So it like faded Uh again, which is probably why I can't tell you what it was right now. Mm -hmm. Do you have any memories like that? Or like, no, dude, perfect memory, memory, man. Perfect memory. (laughs) Glad, glad. This came up as well, and maybe it's a, a statement in itself that I can't remember that memory that I recently remembered. But I was going to say before that, are you still good with remembering names? Because we had this whole thing back in school where we straight up don't forget people, but they always forget about us, maybe because we're just so normal. Yeah, no, I think coming in, we were eager and it was, a I feel like, a high priority on our list to be respectable individuals that like remembered people's names when they introduced themselves to us. And I think I did good for a while after that. But then as just like the number of people came by, it just started dropping. And then the value in my head diminished whatever I held, like with whatever regard I held it dropped, because I realized the frequency with which I came across these people was low. And also because I just ended up realizing like no one else even remembers my name either. And it's terrible to be like, oh, they don't really care that much about it, then I'm not. But that's kind of the game you have to play. I don't know. Where do you kind of hold that at now? In terms of trying to remember names? Yeah. Like, do you still place the same value we once did? I mean, I'd like to think that at least remembering names and one fact about someone goes a long way in terms of just, you know, treating them as a human being. I will say, though, that my capacity has dropped tremendously because going into a big company and work, you're you're thrown into the mix of things on their end. They just have to remember the names of maybe three new hires. But for me, I have to remember a whole load of people all at once. I have to know who exactly to contact for what and the tasks at my work are like divided among a lot more people because less people wear multiple hats so it's almost like a fun association game because you have to know okay for this specific task who would i go to ask and if they delegate me at that moment i have to now update my like internal memory to now i guess go over that person go directly to the actual person and then i just keep forgetting all of those roles and i think it's happened most recently couple of days ago where they just kept passing me around. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but it's fine. I'm, I'm here for it. I've kind of had that experience in, in college, another very large bureaucracy. Yeah. Where, oh, you know, there's a specific person for, you know, doing like event services at Stanford. 
um, but there are like five other people beneath them. So maybe you're actually, you have better luck if you go to that person instead. It's a whole mess, man. I'm sure there's an algorithm for this or some, some network solution. Yeah. Fastest, shortest path to get to a certain node, how to traverse <laughs> the complexities of modern social networking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Yeah, no, it's interesting having to navigate situations like that, especially when there's just not a symmetry in sort of investment on both ends. You know, you're trying to get one thing done. There's a person that's meant or intended to help you get that thing done or uh, people that are trying to get those things done, but they don't care that much. And you care a lot more because you're just trying to do your task. And then it's just, you know, a battle to make it through. But that can be said, I think, for like all relationships, challenges come when they're just not symmetric in terms of effort put in there. Have you had a work anxiety where let's say you're scheduling a meeting or you're you're doing something that is semi-public in front of maybe 10 to 12 employees and it's painfully obvious to you that you don't exactly know what to do because this is something that you've done for the first time and you suddenly have to kind of front that knowledge in front of these people. I think specifically, like I, I had to schedule a meeting at work and I had never done that specific task before. And suddenly I have to write up this whole email saying what's going to happen. Like, I just kind of assumed that everyone knew exactly what was happening. And it's, yeah, I don't know if that has ever happened to you. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to just start off with saying all work gives me anxiety, (laughs) but with regards to this, I think when I was doing product management work, one of the uh, sort of new tasks that came up was there had been another intern there that was working and focused a lot on like data analytics and metrics for the company. And I had never done that before. And she had to take off because I think she was doing like a study abroad term. And so I got handed off all this work and had to pick up a bunch of knowledge and this was information that was presented on a weekly basis for like Monday morning stand-up meetings. And so this was presenting to all the other like senior product managers and some marketing people and some of the like head engineers. And so the first week they told me to like start whipping this up. I was there trying to explain all the changes I had made. And they're like, oh no, that information's not particularly useful. And I'm like, oh nice. I'm glad I spent so many hours making this thinking it would be good or like, hey, those numbers look off from like the individual like data I have. I'm like, okay, cool. And I remember those meetings and it was roughly for maybe like three weeks as I was trying to take over all that had been left behind. And just each morning on Mondays, you know, great way to start the week, just being crazy nervous and getting things. But eventually it ended up being like solid and helpful. And I think it was a pretty fun task as far as learning a new like skill set and like learning how to present as well to, you know, like senior members was super critical and feeling like I could help them with some of like the data things that uh, came up there. But yeah, no, I definitely felt the anxiety and like the first things I had to set up and making sure to get it on time, always had to show up earlier than everyone on uh, Monday mornings to make sure things were ready for them. But yeah, no, that was definitely a big stress. The good thing is it was a smaller team. So it felt, um, 
you know, slightly more comfortable, but not really. <laughs> Did you feel like it being on Mondays was better for you for the rest of the week? Because, you know, you hate, you hate going into the office dreading a meeting or, you know, prepping a lot for a meeting that's on Thursday or Friday. But maybe when it's on Monday, you can just grind on, you know, Thursday, Friday, and then just be done with it. Does it work like that? Kind of. So that it did help relieve a good amount of the stress that I had in my week, because that was always like a big thing, like on Mondays, like prepping for presenting for the meeting and making sure and then taking any feedback and revisions and updating stuff after the meeting. So like usually Monday was dedicated a lot to that. So the rest of the week did ease down. There was some work I had to do on Sundays to get some of the stuff ready or just make sure mm. things were looking all right. So that kind of put a little dent in the weekend. But uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too bad eventually. Like once everything was set up, then it was just like, you know, rinse and repeat. So that was the good kind of aspect of it all. Do you feel comfortable presenting? I don't know how frequently you have to like get up and present, but in front of, you know, your coworkers or in the past, how's your public yeah. speaking been? I think public speaking just by virtue of living alone in quarantine has my, the quality of my speech has just gone down dramatically. I noticed that most recently this morning where I was talking to a coworker um, in person for the first time in like a month and I couldn't string words together. <laughs> Damn. I, I've had, I've had a similar conversation with another coworker who lives alone and she said, her talking to her pet was the first time that she had said a word. And I felt like I vibed so hard with that, maybe more so because I have no pets. So there really is <laughs> no reason for me to utter words in my own home. The things you, you discover by living alone, it's crazy. Yeah, rough row right there. That's rough. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, no. And I think because... I don't know if in your head, do you have like an internal monologue or dialogue with yourself going on? Oh, like, of course. You, yeah. you hear your voice and everything, right? In yeah. your head. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, sometimes you forget that you haven't like uttered any words and then you do or make a sound and your throat's dry as heck, <laughs> but you think, or you feel like you've been talking because in your head, you're running through thoughts all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also play a lot of pictures in my head. Okay. I guess I'm more of a... Yeah, I would consider myself a visual learner. So I'm, I'm imagining kind of like my hands doing the things that I have to throughout the day or I'm picturing what, you know, what a workspace could look like if I wanted to work on photography, for instance, versus what my viewpoint will look like when I'm at my workspace. Cool. So do you just see like pictures in your head? I Like as you're thinking with your eyes open or like yeah, you close your eyes and then vision? I... I probably do it more with my eyes open or I, I kind of map the path of where my hands should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I think it might be more than more that than my internal voice talking to me, telling me what I should do. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I, I haven't thought about that until you asked. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's an interesting concept. And the reason I bring it up is because there was a day that I, was in the kitchen at my house up in the bay and Lulu Day was there and she came over and we got into some conversation about like what one's internal thoughts look like and she mentioned that a co-worker had said that they don't hear their voice in their head like frequently or like when they talk and I was like that blows my mind I just always hear my voice in my head or 
And she says, yeah, they see things or they're more in like abstract. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, how do you get to thinking about that? Because in my head, like, right, it's really hard to think or even imagine what's going on in someone else's head as far as how their thought processes go. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they always talk about geniuses, like whether they're like composers or musicians or some um, physicist or something. And like, you know, they probably see things in a whole different way. And in my head, I'm like, oh, I just hear my voice and I'm talking to myself. Uh-huh. Just call me Albert Einstein, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a question for you as someone who hears more an internal monologue or dialogue, um, however you want to call it, what exactly are the visuals when that happens? Like, is your internal monologue commenting on what's around you at the moment? Or is it this like vague person who's just talking to your entity? Um. Yeah, I think it's just me commenting on things. I'm just kind of narrating or like looking around and like registering information about my environment by like saying, oh, like that's like a TV. It's like very simple. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so like a kind of like a, a Remy and um, what's his name, Alfredo in Ratatouille? You got a Gaspacho. little mouse. Gaspacho. <laughs> I think you're thinking Chowder. Chowder. <laughs> also amazing show, but... It, it's like there's a there's a little rat on your head and it's just it's just commenting and manipulating your body to where it needs to go yeah because i i can like i never see like i can't imagine seeing other images while my eyes are open and already registering other images so yeah. that's why i can't like even fathom sort of what your thought process is like and i think i'm like a pretty visual person Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are the learnings, right? It's like visual, audio, kinesthetic. Yeah. Those are like the three big ones. I can only imagine when kin- kinesthetics would look like all mental. Like you're just imagining how, like say I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight. If I was like a kinesthetics, is the word, that's what we use, right? Kinesthetic yeah, kinesthetics. Thinking. I'm just imagining how like, the vegetables will feel underneath my hands and like mm-hmm. the pressure of that knife. Yeah. That's now that wild. you describe it, I think I'm kind of a kinesthetic learner. That's why maybe I don't see pictures. I like hear things and I feel things because I do run through a lot of motions in my head. Like I mm. o- often like see myself or feel myself like before planning a school day, like, Oh, I'm walking here. I'm walking there. This is what this like looks like. This is time or like, I'm at the gym. This is what these movements feel like. Or like I picture myself biking to the train station and then hopping on the train. I feel it's like partially visual, but also just like feeling space and time kind of move by. And I feel yeah. that's kind of the kinesthetic perspective. So, yeah, that's good. I'm say... glad you described it because I do. That's how I feel like I navigate the world. It's like I can be still, but I feel like I've traveled distances or gone places. Yeah. It's interesting. I would I would describe you as a, a mover if if i had to decide among the learning methods yeah maybe it's just because you're so active yeah that's why i, I'm I always, just get I that sense mm-hmm. i wonder if that's why i'm like always like needing to like fidget my fingers or like stand on my feet or something i don't know i just like am trying or my air drumming i don't know if those are <laughs> just random ways of that energy escaping my brain and making it to my my limbs yeah or, you know, like bobbing your knee up and down. I think yeah. it's a common one that you do. So. Yeah, a lot. Just cause a mini earthquake in every room I sit in. Yeah. Did, uh, did a parent or an older relative not tell you when you were young that you shouldn't be doing that? 
No, my dad does it like nonstop. My sister does as well. My mom, my mom doesn't do it. She doesn't like that we do it. <laughs> Mainly when we're in like an area where she can feel the floor shaking. But in our house, like you don't really feel any vibrations move across the floor. Uh-huh. And your mom is outnumbered in terms of the people who do it versus the people who don't. So. Yeah, just a bunch of anxiety-ridden people and just trying to shake their legs all the time. Did your parents ever uh, try to wean a certain habit out of you when you were young? Like, you know, like nip it in the bud kind of methodology? Who's nipping my butt out here? Um, <laughs> nipping the, the bud. N- nipping the booty. Yeah, exactly. That's what I said. <laughs> Did they nip the booty? Uh, no. <laughs> um, there was one thing that I remember actively. I was an angry child. And mm. so one thing, I always had my like face like scrunched up for like forever. Like my <laughs> lips kind of sticking out, my eyebrows down. And my parents always like told me, relax, like calm down. Mm-hmm. It's like, and with the classic threat of, oh, your face is going to stay like that forever. You're going to get wrinkles and you're just gonna just yeah have that look forever and that was one thing that I feel like I remember them consistently bringing up or telling me to not Uh do um what about you well you know but I'll repeat it for the podcast my dad decided that I shouldn't be left-handed anymore (laughs) so I, I I grew up as a child using things with my left hand I guess just like a natural inclination towards my left hand. And my dad said that the world was built for right-handed people. You know, your gear shift, a lot of things just happen on, on the right side. I guess some, some button shirts, maybe zippers on coats. I'm just thinking about <laughs> normal things, scissors, but now I, I guess scissors can be both sided. So he would like reallocate pencils that were in my left hand to my right hand, you know, little, little things like that. And now I'm just an uncreative corporate shill because of that. Hey, thank you. Thank you, uh, father. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, dad. Alex, can you say thank you, dad? Thank you, dad. There we go. No, but I mean, I, I think at the time it would, it made sense. Yeah. And I, I understand where he was coming from because I mean, the, the world is largely still yeah. for right-handed people, but I dream of a day when they can be equals. He was looking out for you. That day is not, is not yet, but uh, yeah, they did that. My parents told me exactly once in my life, which I thought was kind of interesting that I shouldn't cross my legs when I was sitting down as a kid, because that would stunt my growth. They only told me that once when and, I was, and you pre- stopped. Well, no, I still do it to this day, oh, okay. <laughs> but it was when I was a preteen, so I had been doing it up until that point. They never said anything about it. And then they said one time when we were at dinner with some family friends, don't cross your legs. You're going to stunt your growth. And that was the last time I ever heard them talk about that. Dang, they just called you out. Was this like full cross legs, like completely overlapping or just like at an 90 degree angle? It's like if you were sitting in a chair and you cross one leg over... The, the thigh of the other. Okay, like so that, hamstring that over leg. quad of the other leg. Yeah, or like you're, you're making like a little triangle with your legs. Yeah. They told me don't do that. But oh, I turned I turned out to be an above average height Asian, so we're Gucci. Way to go get them. That's an interesting one. Yeah, because I cross my legs a lot. And honestly, that's why I think I got lower back problems. 
but that's <laughs> no. for another time. <laughs> Do you feel like if you didn't cross your legs, you would be like seven feet right now? Maybe. I might be bigger. I might be a lot bigger. Really makes yeah. you think. Makes you think, where did you mess up in life? <laughs> what did I do to deserve getting here? <laughs> exactly. Well, Oscar, we're at the around the halfway point. I think this is a good time to pause for a second. This is a good do time a to stop the podcast. This is, a good, this is a good time to cancel our entire podcast. Um, thank you for coming. Goodbye. Goodbye. But, this is the, the last episode ever. But no, sorry. But, <laughs> you were saying. <laughs> but you know that what that means. It means we're going to do a little would you rather. I don't know if you have one off the top of your head right now because we're spitting we're spitting raw for this oh, episode. Yeah. Should we just let the audience know this is raw, uncut uh, yeah. version of the podcast? We prep we're nothing. Freestyling. Um, I can start if you want. Yeah, go. You always yeah. have something in mind. <laughs> it, um, it's always topical, and for for this one, I was thinking: Would you rather? Would you rather your leg? you like bob your leg up and down at random moments throughout the day or would you rather your your face get stuck in your your childhood frowny position at random times during the day okay so what was the first one my leg just bobs and crosses over uh no crossing over it just like bobs up and down like you're you're like fidgeting dude i'm fidgeting right now <laughs> i'll take it okay so you take the the leg okay. yeah i'd rather have a happy demeanor and looking face yeah, that was yeah. probably an easy one. Yeah, I got a good one for you. Yeah? yeah. All right. The person with the second verse in every rap battle wins. Okay. Feel free to not answer this one either, because I don't know if this is in our off-topic stuff. <laughs> Let's say <laughs> this is uh, some bedroom talk right here. Okay. Would you rather <laughs> your line and persona be the Hulk and say Hulk smash? Or be the thing and say it's clobbering time. Which of those would be your move? Well, first, I I disagree with the association that it has to be bedroom talk. No, but um, this I, this I want you to answer in this context. <laughs> no, I will answer for the general context because I refute I refute your <laughs> your beginning premise in general. <laughs> what's the Hulk's <laughs> Hulk smash right? Hulk is just Hulk just says Hulk smash all the time, right? Yeah. Um, I think I'm gonna give my logical answer first because okay. that's that's the one that I jumped to first. I I don't associate my persona with Hulk, but it's clobbering time is a general statement that is a grammatically valid sentence. So I would probably take clobbering. There are more instances where clobbering time is relevant than specifically Hulk smash. Yeah, true. Clobbering. And I think, yeah, clobbering is like also a good word. It's different. You don't hear it day to day. It's a little intellectual. Hulk smash is one grammatically incorrect. And, you know, I feel like people say smash more than clobbering. Yeah. So it, 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 it kind of spices up my language a little bit when I say yeah. clobbering. And that's all I'll answer on the topic. Nice. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. I can neither clobber or smash. <laughs> I can neither clobber nor smash, Your Honor. Well, thank you for, for, uh, for indulging me on that, Alex. Yeah, that I was had good. To, that was I had to come one. with one off the cuff. So, you know, there, there it was. I had recently gone through some comments um, of a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And that was 
one of the lines that came up just in a, not the would you rather, but that line. And it got me thinking about it again. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I think through a lot of links that you've been sending me and Jorge, I've started kind of opening up my mind about who is, I guess, popular and big now on YouTube, because I haven't really followed YouTube celebrities since the early 2010s. And the landscape's totally changed. And I started looking up some of these people because they popped up on my Instagram Discover. So can you explain to me why I should care about what's the what's the Serbian guy's name? Dobrik? Oh, David Dobrik? Yeah, Dobrik. I, I searched him up on a whim randomly. Turns out the dude's like 20, he's like our age, he's like 23. They have this, or he's related to this house of like YouTubers or TikTokers, something like that. Yeah, so David Dobrik, so he's a young YouTuber. He's roughly our age, he's 23 years old. And he's like super, super like popular, got like, I think like billions or millions of views, whatever. He's also got a podcast, so mm -hmm. maybe we can get to that level. But he's part of a squad of um, other YouTubers called the Vlog Squad. It's like a big gang of them, maybe like 10, 12 members. And each of them have their own YouTube uh, channels as well. And they're like always featured and stuff. But David's videos are unique in the sense that his videos are really short. Specifically, mm -hmm. you know, he went with uh, videos that are always like roughly four minutes and 20 seconds. Classic, <laughs> you know, um, but it's like really fast content, just like highlight clips um, back to back of him just gooning around. And at this point, he's like amassed enough wealth that he does like a lot of giveaways and like crazy like stunts or things like that with his friends. Um, but it's chill and that it's just like him hanging out with his squad, which is like, I guess, in the lifestyle YouTube world, you know, where people just like record their days and what they do yeah no he's a pretty popular dude or one of the people that's up there i guess in the youtube community right now okay a couple of questions come from that in in terms of this community do they all have a similar style or like a i guess like if they're it would make sense for them to gather around having somewhat similar styles but in that respect doesn't that make them competitors or they're kind of encroaching on each other's turf a bit i think they have different styles so like not all of them do this whole four minute 20 fast videos a lot have others just more standard just like vlogging videos of just like recording their activities and i think some of the stuff they feature in each of the videos doesn't like overlap like maybe they might be at the same hangout or gathering but mm -hmm. they'll like highlight different takes or things that like happened at whatever party or like stunt they were doing so I think there's that and I think a lot of the fan base like has a very all-encompassing like engagement with like his crew or whatever and like watch like multiple of the people's videos sure there are some with like more subscribers and views and all of that but I feel like as far as it comes to like career and having subscribers and making money I feel like they're all doing pretty decent yeah because they've been able to come up together and so it's like you know they've raised themselves together. So I think that helps out from like a career move. Gotcha. Did he have a, a claim to fame? Because typically people, my, my mind jumps first, like Casey Neistat. He has yeah. a, a very unique workshop and work ethic. And I think part of his like rise to fame is having just a very interesting life. He yeah. gets 
plane tickets for free and he, he reviews like the first class cabin on Etihad Airways or, you know, Qatar Air. And, you know, that draws in just more and more people. So it's almost like a, this feedback loop. But mm-hmm. how does a 23-year-old, someone our age, amass that, that much of viewership so quickly? Yeah, I think so. Given his age, you can kind of build a context around there. A lot of YouTubers right now that I put in like his poll as far as age bracket and style uh, came from the era of Vine. So a lot of these people like had a following and had amassed like their followers when Vine was popular mm-hmm. and then Vine went down. And so they kind of just began transferring their content and stuff to just like larger creations on YouTube. So there's a couple other guys like this YouTuber and I've sent you some of his stuff, Cody Co. Mm-hmm. I think uh, he first started doing like little comedy bits on Vine as well. And now he's got, you know, a pretty popular YouTube channel as well as a podcast. And he's in this like show that just like kind of went on Facebook watch. So, yeah, I feel and he's also he's like 29. So kind of like 90s kids, I think uh, that like did Vine stuff and then transferred over is sort of how they built up a good amount of their following. Mm-hmm. And uh, funny enough, David Dobrik, he's done like a video or two, at least with Casey Neistat. Okay, nice. I think they're friends and stuff, but I feel like that's how that community goes. Here's a, an open question for you and maybe people listening right now. Are Vine stars comedians? Like if you had to, because now vlogging is obviously a full-time profession and you can say that all of these people are vloggers, but if you had to put them into a more archaic job title, are they comedians vine i think is built on the the premise that things are funny and snappy right yeah that's a good question and i i feel like i've listened to some comedians engage on this conversation i'm trying to recall who i've listened talk about it vloggers i wouldn't say are comedians i think vloggers are just like video makers or filmmakers or more in that pool lifestyle documentarians if you will (laughs) That's that's a fancy label. The uh-huh. Vine stars themselves, mm, I think they could be because, I don't know, with comedy, you can break it into like a bunch of categories. You have like yeah. comedy as far as it goes with like plays and movies, right? You know, like larger mm-hmm. productions. Then you have like stand up and monologues. And then on top of that, you have like skits are like the next thing. Skits and sketches. Yeah. Um. Those are, I think, like the four big pools. I don't know if you have any other that you would throw in there. I see improv is also there. Improv, yeah. yeah. So improv. Um, so you have like these kind of big categories. And then it's like, all right, if we're working with this model, where do you place, um, you know, this modern digital era of content? So Vine, Vine, they're a bunch of like little bits and sketches is what they are, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like that does in one way fall under a given category. I think of it. And so I think they are a form of comedy. If comedy's aim is to bring like joy, laughter, and like highlight some feature of one's life or of the world, then I think a good number of vines do accomplish sort of that aim or goal. Mm. But I don't know what your thought on it is. That's just for vine. Cause then there's a bunch of just like stuff that I feel like we share or watch on like just a bunch of sketches or little bits that like YouTubers will record. Yeah. I've always been super interested in this as someone who would watch recordings of like late night shows that my parents uh, 
at. And I believe I started following it heavily when Jay Leno, David Letterman, and Conan O'Brien were the main three people out there. And all of these folks have roots in more traditional comedy channels, if you will. Conan O'Brien was a writer predominantly. He was also in, I believe, an L.A. improv theater that Lisa Kudrow was also part of. Lisa Kudrow yeah. from Friends. Jay Leno was always very famous for working comedy clubs and doing stand-up. I think that was like the only thing that my mom said was good about Jay Leno. The man works very hard and does comedy shows and tries out new material. He's but also got I, a sick collection of cars. He does. Um, <laughs> but we also hate Jay Leno because of what he did to Conan. <laughs> did him real dirty. And David Letterman, I think, has always been there. So I'm not entirely sure how he, he rose to fame. But it always seemed like that there was a blueprint for getting into the comedy business. You had to bust your ass doing stand-up comedy and have a lot of really bad gigs and suffer a lot seems to be what earns your stripes in the comedy business. Or you had to do improv. But improv kind of leads you to places like SNL and then working comedy movies mm -hmm. more so than I think the late show or the late night show, I think only right off the top of my head, Jimmy Fallon is the only one that I know who's still got a show and who did improv type things when he started. And he was also on SNL. But I'm really interested in this new field of YouTube comedians or sketch artists or vloggers and how that interacts with this more like old school, old guard comedy. Um, yeah. You know, Lily Singh. Mm -hmm. So she started on YouTube and now she actually has a late show. Like a, yeah, an established late show that goes on either after James Corden or on a different network. Um, so it's it's been very interesting to see how she interacts with that medium coming from a, a newer one. Yeah. And then I, I guess one other thing that could be mentioned here is also who knows if these artists on like the digital world are even trying to be like labeling themselves as comedians. Like, I don't know how they choose to like define themselves or like what space they consider themselves in. Cause you know, it might be like a whole new genre of entertainment that they're trying to brand themselves. in. it's like the whole thing, you know, when uh, a lot of like trap came out and a lot of people called it not rap, you know, they're like, oh, what is this mumble rap? What is this mm -hmm. nonsense? And so there was, you know, a lot of backlash. And then they started interviewing some like trap artists and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't even consider myself like a rapper. But then you had some people that were in this, you know, like trap genre and they're like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a rapper. And so there's just like always like heat when you're like redefining a space. Yeah. And I think today there might be some implicit associations about the titles. So if you say that you're a comedian, I think, unfortunately, in my mind, the mental image that I make is if you're a comedian, you're probably 40 years old, you're white, you're balding, and then you're making um, like bad jokes on stage and maybe you're you're bombing a lot. But then when you say that you're a vlogger, I think if you were to ask someone in like the, the 18 to 25 range, 
you might be like really hot shit or I think there's a, a greater impact if you say that you're a vlogger to, to like the younger crowd. Yeah, you got to know what market you're catering to. And and I think there's just different different approaches to it because, you know, at like the rawest form of just stand-up comedy, you and audience and your lines and the material you've written versus, you know, I think the big area is just a lot of sketches. Like that incorporates a mix of writing and then also just like filming like components and mm-hmm. artistry that comes in with that. So they are they are different spaces. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, as long as it brings some sort of entertainment value to people, which I think people do enjoy and find yeah. humor in it, I, at least I do with the folks I follow. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty enjoyable. Yeah. And I think for me, the key with a lot of great comedy is that it is a commentary on life and whatever is going on, mm-hmm. you know, because there is some comedy that's just more just like, really dumb and stupid for the sake of it or whatever it is but we still Um, love them all the same yeah we do (laughs) but yeah i think i would side in saying that these are at least the people doing sketches are are comedians yeah which uh we talked about a lot of different subsects of um of the comedy world which one do you feel most drawn to Mm, well that's a good one i i like (laughs) Uh stand-up i enjoy just watching stand-up comedy a lot in terms of just uh watching how one works in audience is always challenging and yeah i used to do sort of uh monologue humorous like performances in high school mm-hmm. and so kind of having some slight relation with what it feels like to be in front of a crowd and tweak whatever your script is slightly as you're performing depending on how you're reading the audiences it's a lot of hard work and so I think just seeing that at its bare bones form is is pretty cool. So for a little bit of background, what you did was part of speech and debate in high school? Yeah, it was this event called Humorous Interpretation. And then there was this other event called Duo Interpretation, where you'd get like a, a comedy script or play, condense it down to a 10 minute performance, you know, keep what you wanted in it. And then you'd perform it. You'd have to play multiple characters. So you'd have to like adjust your posture and pose in different manners, change your voice um, to play out these different characters and kind of pop from one to another as you put on this one man show in the humorous interpretation case. And then the other one was with a partner. But in in those competitions, I assume there was a panel of judges who was kind of deciding whether. Yeah. So it's like there'd be other performers competing with their scripts that they had come prepared and practiced forever. And the room would be like the judges and then it'd be the other performers they're watching as well. And then mm-hmm. like friends or audience members that just swung by. So the audience was just like a mix of people. And it was always super intense because everyone else there is trying to outcompete you and have a good set yeah. as well. But you're also trying to have a good time because, you know, it's like, how do you mix being funny and loose while being under this like stress and pressure? And I yeah. think that challenge in stand-up is insane. <laughs> but w- would you, was there a sense of winning or not winning in these competition yeah yeah i think well one at the end of the day it feels good to go home with a trophy or a medal if you like (laughs) made it to the final rounds as you advance through different um stages but even more so than that i think having just a good performance in a room even if i didn't make it onto the next round like making sure i got the laughs when i intended to get them and uh making sure i like brought the audience along in that ride was key 
Yeah. Did you, or I guess the, it seems like the main distinction between this humorous interpretation and then doing stand up, like the big leap is that instead of getting the validation or maybe artificial validation from this plastic trophy that you get at the end of the day, you instead have to gauge the audience based on like the laughing and like their immediate responses to what you say. So do you feel like you're mentally prepared to face the latter feedback rather than like, you know, a panel of judges? If I were ever to enter that space again or be in that space, I think so. It's always scared and hard and I don't think that changes, Mm -hmm. but I think having audience feedback, because I feel sometimes in the competitions, the feedback was minimal Mm -hmm. um, depending on how much laughter. And so it's always hard. And I think even there, you know, saying a joke or hitting a line and then not getting any response always hurts. And so I think that just (laughs) continues. And so being ready to handle that preps you for things in that space and also like in work or anything. What's your favorite form of comedy? I, I, I always wanted to do like sketch comedy. I think that comes from an appreciation of like SNL, an appreciation of Conan O'Brien's sillier skits. By the way, Conan O'Brien, king of comedy, in my opinion. Men's been around for a while. I've also been very interested in the kind of genre breaking comedic shows, but not necessarily comedy shows. I think one program that does it very well is Atlanta. We call it, there are definitely a lot of comedic moments, but it also gets very dramatic and very real in certain points. And I think he does it very well, just kind of like towing the line. There's some episodes that are just hilarious. There's there's one very surreal one where there's an invisible car. Like there's there's nothing to suggest that there's any sci-fi in this show. But okay, then there's, there's just an invisible car. <laughs> yeah, then there's like there's like one episode I think where they're just talking about in an invisible car. <laughs> And then there's like a shootout that happened. You know, there's violence in this world. There's a shootout that happens in a, outside of a nightclub. And then you see like an Instagram video of the incident. And then you see these two people floating in the air, just like run over one of the gangsters and then drive off in the background. It's those kinds of like surreal moments. Um, like Louis, the sitcom by Louis C.K. that has since been canceled because of just very concerning behavior by Louis C.K. But... I think that show had a lot of like really interesting scenarios and situations that toe the line between the surreal, the emotional, and then just the flat out like outrageous and comedic. But I, I also acknowledge that to get to that point where you can have a show, you need to be able to sell it to producers. And to do that, you need to have some clout by yourself. In both of those situations, they kind of made their name in a different industry. Like Louis did a lot of stand-up comedy and then Childish Gambino's Childish Gambino. Don't forget community. And yeah, community. Was that his first like big break? I think so. At least that's how I... He was He was pretty young. He was little in there. So I assume I feel like that was it. I remember reading up that one of his first forays into the comedy business was writing a speculative script I think about The Simpsons, speculative script being you use the characters from a show and then you put them in a new situation and then you write dialogue between them. And I guess that was enough to get noticed by some producers to do stand-up, I think. Did you do stand-up? He do, he, I've, seen, I've seen some stand-up stuff by by uh, Donald Glover, as I guess he goes for, and in, in, in stand-up. But yeah, yeah, I've, I feel like I've seen some stand-up by him, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if we'll ever get to a 
it will get to a an age where people don't have to do stand-up comedy at all to be in comedy shows like will snl ever get to a point where the entire cast is just youtube and vine stars maybe i don't know i feel like I feel like it could be possible because I feel like you have some pretty solid writers and content creators out on like other platforms. Right. But at the same time, you value that type of stage presence and the ability to work by the seat of your pants, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are some people that have like a mix of that background. So like that guy, Cody Co that I mentioned, and then his friend, Noel Miller, who also is like big and does a bunch of stuff like they'll occasionally like go out and do tours and so they'll look okay. at different like cities and venues and like do like little shows and stuff and so they can like work with crowds or that other guy in sketches we watch trevor wallace he also does like stand up at clubs but he also has like a huge presence on like all these sketches he does on youtube okay so i think have... like they mix some of that in mm. have you seen his stand-up comedy i have uh, okay. i've seen like like maybe like one or two like small like sets that he did mm-hmm. and i think his like style of humor is similar to what he like includes in his sketches and it's like decent so um yeah okay that was going to be my question like does his style translate to stand up or is he just like a totally different person still funny but totally different person um still funny same character though like he okay. works like he doesn't he doesn't try to change like who he is or what he like talks about and engages with like he knows his like audience and what he aims for yeah world of comedy maybe one day one day when we've uh started our second act and we run that food truck we'll just have a, a stage out back of that food truck and we'll just do our little bits dude that'd be sick <laughs> little comedy comedy show food truck comedy show maybe some music bust out we, that violin we make bank dude so some country music some country music that's what i'm talking about you know those you know those food venues at any of these locations make like a boatload of money because they got nowhere else to to go you have to buy that 11 dasani water <laughs> fills you up fills you up real good <laughs> oh man well there you go i think that's an episode that's a raw uncut episode boom if i've ever heard one that's a real nice nice little present to the the listener yeah this is for you Merry if you if you've made it this far, this is for you. <laughs> if you haven't made it this far, well, oh well. <laughs> Alrighty, well, Oscar, thank you so much for potting with me. Thank you for uh, for uh, potting with me. This was uh, this was an interesting experience. We hit a lot of topics, so I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you for joining us, folks. In case we don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>